This episode, titled Revolutionizing the Way You Hear Theater with Ivan Edebury of the Parsnipship and playwright Andrew Rincon, was published on the HowlRound Theater Podcast on April 6, 2020. Please see the link in the show notes for the transcript on the HowlRound website. Adventures in Audio Fiction is supported by HowlRound Theater Commons, a free and open platform for theater makers worldwide. The HowlRound podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and HowlRound.com. Hey friends, welcome to Adventures in Audio Fiction. My name is Tamara Kassane. I'm a theater maker and the host of the podcast Artist Soapbox based in Durham, North Carolina. Although theater is my first and enduring love, over the last three years, my creative work has turned increasingly towards writing and producing scripted audio fiction. First, by adapting versions of my stage plays into audio dramas, and more recently by writing to audio directly as I develop two scripted audio fiction serials. This interview series for HowlRound is part of my quest to learn more about audio drama by speaking with the people who are working in the medium, some of whom have a background in theater and some who don't, but either way, they are knocking it out of the park. I have so many questions, and you may have some too. As theater artists, what can we learn from audio fiction creators? What skills can we leverage to create powerful audio work? What do we need to learn? Is scripted audio fiction an evolution of a theatrical form, or is it its own distinct and discrete form altogether? Before I begin, this episode has some profanity, so if you have kids in the room or you're listening in the workplace, just be aware. This episode is a two-in-one interview all related to The Parsnipship. The Parsnipship series features new plays and new music performed live each month in Brooklyn and then released as a free podcast. The first half of this episode is an interview with Ivan Idebury, the artistic director and host of The Parsnipship. And the second half of the episode is with Andrew Rincon, a playwright who is featured on Parsnip and whose play I Wanna Fuck Like Romeo and Juliet is one of their most downloaded episodes. My conversation with Ivan and Andrew was recorded on February 19th, 2020, which seems like so long ago now. At that point, Andrew's play, I Want to Fuck Like Romeo and Juliet, was scheduled to be fully staged at New Light Theater Project in New York City in May. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, it will be rescheduled for performances in the 2021 season. We'll look forward to that. Stay safe, friends. Sending you love. Here's part one. Ivan Edebury is a creative producer, company manager, and dramaturg, and serves as artistic director and host of The Parsnipship, a monthly new work series showcasing collaborations between underproduced playwrights, musicians, and composers. Inspired by the radio play format, the works are recorded live at the Mark O'Donnell Theater and available to stream online. Ivan is a recipient of a Fulbright Research Fellowship and the Benjamin A. Gilman International Scholarship. She was an Americans for the Arts Dial Fellow and a Fellow of the Du School Future of Audio Entertainment Program in Berlin. She was recently awarded the Mark O'Donnell Prize for Emerging Theater Artists and Entrepreneurs. Ivan received a BA from Brandeis University and an MA in Arts Administration from Baruch College. 
Ivan and I connected via cell phone to discuss the mission and values of the Parsnip Ship, how playwrights write for audio, and the Radio Roots Writers Group, a new initiative by the Parsnip Ship to support emerging playwrights who are interested in re-engaging with playwriting through audio-focused storytelling. Enjoy part one with Ivan. Hi, Ivan. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Would you describe for us the parsnip ship? Sure. So the quick and dirty of it is that we're reimagining the concept of radio plays, also in the sense of new play development and kind of combining those two entities and those two concepts into one. And so we record systematically underproduced playwrights and their plays in front of a live audience. And we also curate musicians who have a catalog of music that really aligns with the vibe and the spirit of the play itself. We record all of that live in Brooklyn. And then we release it as a podcast episode a month or two later for other people to listen in on and join in and hear and discover new playwrights, new stories, and, of course, new musicians because they're a part of it. And then lastly, we end the podcast, our episodes, with an interview with the playwright to get to learn more about them, get to know about their inspiration behind writing the work. And sometimes I interrogate ideas or a line that a playwright has written that I find very um, moving or I, you know, interrogate something that the audience really reacted to. So it's get a conversation going. And we should mention that this is free for people to attend. It's free for people mm-hmm. to participate in and it's free for listeners as well. So that accessibility piece is, I think it's amazing. Yes. I've always been in the world of accessible theater as someone who hasn't always been able to afford theater as someone who is a theater maker and still can't afford to see theater sometimes, I think it's important that we try to make theater as accessible as possible, especially for the folks who are underproduced, because that's a thing that's been told to them that they're, you know, that their stories and their identities aren't marketable, when in fact it is, it's really removing the barriers that exist, which are, you know, being physically in a theater, so you don't have to do that to experience partnership. And also paying for theater because uh, parsnip is, you know, free. Mm-hmm. You've talked a little bit about this in what you just said, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about why you originally thought there was a need for something like the parsnip ship. Well, so parsnip actually started as a passion project with an, a former business partner who came with to me with the idea of starting a podcast recording plays and I didn't really understand like what that was all about but we tested out a bunch of things in our first like couple of seasons and it wasn't until the third season after they left that I was like okay like what do I want what really drives me and what motivates me and I'm really motivated and driven by stories so when it came to research figuring out what I want a parsnip to be is like stories and the people whose stories aren't being told or aren't being heard. And that really shifted gears for me to really go into and be really specific about types of communities and types of playwrights that I want to feature on this platform. 
Let's talk about the audio angle. You have a list of criteria that you're looking for in the plays that are being submitted for the upcoming season. And the first bullet point for consideration is, does the play not only work, but excel in an audio only format? So would you talk a little bit about that, about what works and what doesn't in audio? Yeah, so it's it's a really interesting time for submissions, which we're in, and I will start reading soon. But playwrights are usually writing plays to be seen and not necessarily only to be heard. And so there's a shift in how playwrights have to approach playwriting or adjusting their plays for the Parsnip platform. Because I know when I'm reading, I'm not reading, for the most part, plays that were written for audio or for radio play style, but they were written for stage. So I often have to read and go, could this work in audio? And if so, what are the ways in which X, Y, and Z things can be changed? Does that mean that stage directions is a big one? So does that mean that stage directions usually have to be cut? So there, there isn't a lot of exposition because you want your audience to fill in essentially not the bare bones of what you've given them, but a a simple setting. You want them to fill it in. And then the movements, unless they are really important for the character development, it's kind of like, how do you strip that away and still have a story move forward while also giving um, your audience their space and their own creativity and their own imagination. And so that's one kind of balance that we have to look for. Another thing is how do people play with sound in the work that they're writing? Because again, it's not something that is really taught in MSA programs. It's not something that's really honed in on is how do you think about sound and how is sound a part of the story? How is sound a focal part of the story? And how do we move those things forward to get the intention that the playwright has set out for their play? So it's a very niche kind of way of thinking. I think a lot of playwrights they have difficulty with it and some really, really can, are really into leaning into that challenge and just being okay with exploding their play to kind of put it back together using sound. It's also something that we look for in the play that we were considering for submission. Is that part of a conversation that you would have with a playwright who submits, helping them figure out how they might incorporate sound more vigorously into their play? We, I usually broach that conversation after the playwright has accepted because for the most part, we know that the plays can work audio, um, via audio. So once I have accepted the playwright, I go into like an onboarding kind of session for a couple of months where I'm just meeting with them and grabbing coffee or drinks and we're just chatting about their plays and I bring up notes from either uh, the people who have read their um, submissions or my own dramaturgical notes about how things may sound and what their intentions are. So it's always a conversation, and the conversation becomes even more, more illuminated once we have a director as part of the process who also helps shape how certain sounds that may be the actors doing the foley or even helping to dramaturge the play with the playwright or the director would go, huh, have you thought about making, instead of saying this, we just make this kind of sound, and this is how it would sound, is that in line with what you're thinking? So it's always a, it's a very collaborative process. I want to talk about a question that you ask your playwrights, and that is also 
one of the criteria that you're asking for submissions. And that is the question, what would the world be missing if it didn't have this play? And I have to tell you Mm -hmm. that when I first heard that, when I was listening to Parsnipship, I found that question to be (laughs) heartbreaking as a playwright because Mm -hmm. not only was it very difficult to answer, but also because it seems vital to answer. This is the question, right? So how did you arrive at that question? Why do you think it's important? I actually don't recall how that question came up one time, and I think we just repeated it. But I think it, it really does. I mean, it helps ground and center me when it comes to submissions to go, what is this playwright trying to say and what would the world be missing if it didn't have this play? Is it a new perspective? Is it something that challenges me? Is it something that makes me uncomfortable? Is it something that makes the other readers, submissions readers, uncomfortable? What are we really missing without this play? And that's something that I, yeah, we've added to submissions. Um, We didn't have it before, but we've added it so that playwrights can really think about how they've approached playwriting. I think it's, that's one question, how they've approached storytelling and why did they spend so much time writing this play that, you know, may or may not ever get produced or may or may not be listened to, but you felt it was vital and important in the world. And I want to know why. Mm -hmm. Would you talk a little bit about this upcoming season? Because I think this next year has kind of an overarching theme for plays. Is that right? Yes. So early on in the third season, I was thinking, okay, what are the demographics that are not really like heard in large numbers? Over, and I mean this in like large numbers. I know there are queer playwrights, and I know there are black playwrights, there are female playwrights, but in large numbers in American theater, it is still very much white, straight, cis men. And I can't say for that. At all. I just can't. Mm. So, uh, so because Parsnip is my, my baby at this point and I don't really have, Parsnip is not working in the ways that a lot of American theater is working in, in which like the board, because we're starting a board, but in which the board, you know, might have some say on like, who's getting produced and yada, yada, yada. I don't, or, you know, if a show is too political, they might want to pull out. I don't have all of the considerations. The only consideration I have is who is not getting produced enough and how can we highlight them. And so last year we had a season of all POC playwrights, um, playwrights of color. This season we are currently in a season of all female playwrights and that runs the gamut across the gender sexuality spectrum of womanhood and the next season our season six that we just opened up submissions for will be all queer playwrights and musicians and I think that's going to be really all of these things have been really cool um, and I'm really excited for next season with it only being queer musicians as well um, and also just giving that platform and also adding to the queer creative community in New York. Mm-hmm. Are you open to talking about the Radio Roots Writers Group and how this is an extension of the Parsnipship? Yeah. So Radio Roots is something I had been wanting to start for about two, three years. I'm really excited it's actually happening. And I wanted a writers group specifically focused on creating a new 
plays for the radio, like so radio plays, and not ones that were you know written for stage, and then were converting to audio as parts, most of Parsnip plays are. But specifically, how um, how do we start from scratch writing a new radio play? So I work with three other facilitators: Al Parker, who's an associate producer; she's a line producer, associate artistic associate for Parsnip. And Gabriella Steinberg, who is a really dope uh, dramaturg and librarian, and F.B. Proctor, who's also a dope dramaturg and sound designer. And the four of us have come together to essentially create like a long-form radio writers group that also has a little bit of an academic lens to it in the sense of getting into the space of audio. So F.B. has really been leading conversations with the writers about modes of listening and how do we rethink how we listen and how do we rethink how we listen in terms of storytelling and putting all of these pieces together. And so at the end of our uh, group time together, which will end in June, each of the four writers who are Gina Femia, Nina Key, Jesse DeBruin, and Amara Brady, they will each have their own individual radio plays that they have written throughout this time that we've been together. And then collectively, the four of them will be writing an original radio play horror piece. Oh, wow. will be, yeah. So they're going to be leaving with essentially two plays that they've um, written as a cohort together, or five in total, I should say. There will be five solos in the end. Um, which is really exciting. And so we meet every other Tuesday, and it's lots of fun for three hours. In a couple of weeks, we're going to go on a weekend retreat, and we're going to give the writers time and space in a beautiful nature environment to really collaborate and start to, to work on their, their horror pieces together. I am so in love with this program. I think that's so exciting. That's wonderful. It's like gives people the support that they need to transition into a new medium because it's not exactly the same thing to write for the stage as it is to write for purely audio. Right. It's, it's so not, and it's something I've definitely learned over the last five years of doing Parsnip. And so I really wanted to come in, have a group that is essentially on even playing fields. None of them are really audio writers and that's fine. They all have their own skills and their own voices. We know like the horror play is so exciting for me because they each, uh, each of these amazing writers, they all have their own very interesting viewpoints and the way they approach playwriting. So for them to do something collaboratively on something that's horror, which is also something in theater is very rare is horror plays. Mm -hmm. There are not a lot of horror plays. And, And so I think there's something really cool about four queer women coming together to write a four-part horror play. And that's so exciting to me. I think that that genre also fits really well with audio because horror, it's so associated with a soundscape and kind of what that does to us physically is really powerful. I spoke to Andrew about his play, I Want to Fuck Like Romeo and Juliet, and the Parsnip Ship featured that play in 2018, I think it was, early 2018. He had mm-hmm. he had so many wonderful things to say about that experience and the support that it gave him as a playwright. I wanted to check in with you if you had anything to say about that piece specifically and working with him. 
I love that play so, so much. Andrew submitted that play, and it was like 30 pages of a draft, but there was something so beautiful and magical about it. Usually someone submits 30 pages of a draft, I was like, what is what is this? What's happening? But there was something, uh, and that was before I had like a little bit more structured uh, guidelines, but there was something so beautiful and magical about that play and what he wanted to do with it. Up until that moment, I felt like I had not seen a lot of queer love stories. I had not seen them. I had not heard them. And to have it reimagined with Cupid and Valentine and this also this, this tense of despondency of love and also feeling like, you know, there's a character, Betty, who feels like she may never fall in love. Mm -hmm. It felt like it was such a universal yet epic play. And I am, I'm so thrilled that that play is coming to life and that people will be able to witness the magic that Andrew created. And really it was just 30 pages of a draft and it's just beautiful. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was already beautiful. Yeah, it's a wonderfully powerful play. I enjoyed listening to it so much. It's just a great story. And Andrew was, has been an amazing collaborator. He's helped read for us for Parsnip in our submission cycle. He knows that he knows my wide range of tastes and, and the, also the type of people I want to work and collaborate with. And Blaze, his director, was also a resident director for Parsnip for some time. So she also knew how best to direct a play for audio in that, in that sense. And so that also gave it a heightened, really fleshed out version of itself that I should have known Andrew would pull through, but I didn't expect it to be so, so amazingly flushed out as it was for audio. Mm -hmm as he got it to be um, for our recording date. He did a really interesting thing in that he, it was a stage play, but he wrote it to be heard. And so I mm -hmm. think that was real. I mean, the way that the stage directions were chosen and handled and the information that was given to the audience, it was clearly something that you could only really fully experience if you, if you saw it as a live theater event, but I could access it through my ears and I still found it to be really powerful. So kudos to him, to the director, to the actors and to everyone for making that piece. It felt really complete. Yes, it did. Thank you. I rave about that play to everyone. So I'm just really excited. It's coming. Uh, it's being produced in, in New York so I can actually see it, which has been, um, I think this will be the first part of the play that, I, that I'll be able to see that has been produced. We've had a few get produced around the country, but I haven't been able to travel to them. I can't imagine how you are as productive as you are because the parsnip ship, I imagine, is an enormous amount of work. And then you have all of these other things that you're doing as well. So how are you doing that? <laughs> well, I have a really awesome parsnip team. That really helps have people you can just like trust to do the thing. It's a lot of communications and a lot of like kind of rolling with the punches. I start my day being like, this is my day. I'm going to do this and this and this. It 40% of the time works out the way that I have wanted my day to work out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I work in many jobs in which I'm producing. So I think that helps. It makes it a little stressful sometimes when all of things all happen at once, as they will in April. So that's but in general, it's, it's nice that like a lot of my work can be mobile. And it's also like a lot of people meeting. It's also the thing. A lot of just meeting and interfacing with people and a lot of communication, a lot of Google Calendar. Yeah. And writing things down. 
God bless Google Calendar. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about before we wrap up? Just that, you know, Parsnip are always growing. We'd love, you know, people to talk about it, to um, use us as a resource. We have so many great plays and playwrights that really run the gamut of intersectionality and diversity that are continuously overlooked by American theater. And we all know why, but we can resist it by making sure that we share stories that are accessible by people who are not of power or in power yet. And that's really, that's really important. So thank you for highlighting Parsnip and what we do. Thank you so much. I appreciate this conversation. And now for part two with playwright Andrew Rincon. Andrew Rincon is a queer Colombian-American playwright based in New York City. His plays have been developed with Rising Circle Theater Collective, INTAR, the Austin Latino New Play Festival, the Amoralists Theater Company, Porkfield Productions, Outfront Productions, and the 24-Hour Plays. He was a member of Ink Tank Lab for Playwrights of Color and the 2017 Fornace Playwriting Workshop. He is a winner of the 2018 Chesley Bumbleau Grant for Writers of Gay and Lesbian Theater, a Dramatist Guild Fellow, and a McDowell Colony Fellow. He is a company member of Unit 52 at INTAR, the New York City Latinx Playwrights Circle. Andrew spoke to me from the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire about his play, I Want to Fuck Like Romeo and Juliet, which was featured on the Parsnip Ship in May of 2018. We talked about his experience with Parsnip and how that figured into his creative process, writing for audio, the value of readings and recordings for playwrights, and much more. Enjoy part two with Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for this conversation today. Oh, thank you for having me. So your piece, I Want to Fuck Like Romeo and Juliet, was featured on the Parsnip Ship. How did the Parsnip Ship cross your radar, and why did you submit your play? Uh, so I had a, a couple like friends and colleagues who have like worked with worked with Ivan and Parsnip playwrights that I really admire, like Brian Otano and Keila Gibson. And so it was kind of on my radar that way. And so when they were looking for submissions, I Want to Fuck Like Romeo and Juliet was at like a one act point and it was a very different kind of a play. And I knew I wanted to keep working on it. So I thought I kind of pitched it to Ivan as that, like, I was like, here is the draft of this play. And I'm up until 2017, I'll, I'll be writing it and working on a full length and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it was just, I heard about like kind of ebbs and flows in the community about, you know, Yvonne and what they were doing. And I had listened to some and really liked what I heard. You started with a one act play and then you developed it into a full length piece for the, the reading on the parsnip ship. Mm -hmm. How did you prepare your play for audio? Like what did that shift do for you as a playwright? Yeah. I mean, like my experience with Parsnip was like, I think kind of unique to a lot of the playwrights, at least that were in my season. And I think from what I've understood about seasons after us, generally people came in with, you know, a play that's kind of been either workshopped or they heard aloud before. And so I kind of had a different kind of pitch in, in terms of like, it, it really, I think it was, it unlocked something really incredible in my life, knowing that I was going to rather than prepping for like a normal reading, like in a downtown space or something with music stands in front of a audience, I was like, Oh, I'm getting to like have a thing. And it, I'll, we'll just focus on listening. 
And so it, it was this really incredible experience that it really unlocked, I think, my creativity in a way that I don't think I quite ever had before. And I've told this to Ivan many times, and I think like the success of my episode and, and everything was was due to this, but it, it really unlocked, I think, it was an opportunity that really pushed me to be more the writer I wanted to be because I was prepping for audio rather than, and I wasn't kind of constrained by the limits of what theater can, what can be, you know, I think like most playwrights, I sometimes have to fight with that devil on my shoulder. That's like, this is producible. And, you know, most opportunities are for less than five actors and most opportunities are, you know, about producibility and and set. And, and so I was able to write this play that, you know, moves from outer space to Hackensack to spiritual realms to magic to realism to and everything in between. So it really unlocks something for me in, in writing for that podcast. I feel like you took so many risks with this piece, which I loved, by the way. I think it's beautiful. So the content I feel like is is beautifully vulnerable and expansive and inspiring, which is its own risk. But then you also took risks, as you mentioned, with some of these design elements. And as I was listening, I was thinking about how a team might actually stage this as a live theater piece. And I I can't wait to find out because... Yeah, I think that was the thing. I think I had... I think what the platform that I bought gave me and like trusting me you know, I bonded in, like, I bond checked in with me. Like, I found out I got into Parsnip the June before that February, right? So, and Ivan was just like, great, I'll see you in February. And kind of gave me the space and time to, like, really sit with that and, like, let myself risk in a really exciting way. And I think because I didn't have to worry about, you know, all these limits of how this is going to get done because it was going to get done either way because we're just listening to it it really let me be as, as vulnerable and honest as I wanted to be, which I think is why, you know, I have other plays, but I want to fuck is really the play that did real has done the most for my career as a playwright. I think just because people responded to the honesty, if that makes sense in it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, he's, that's him. I think no one else could write that. I didn't even think I was at the moment thinking about it being a risk. I think I was just like, Ivan just gave me the space and time to be myself, if that makes sense. What has happened to the piece since the reading on the Parsnip ship? You have a, an actual production coming up. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I may. It's going to be my kind of, as people like to shout in my face a lot, it's going to be my New York premiere with, um, <laughs> you know, reviews and a full production and a full run at the Flea Theater downtown. Yeah, I mean, the, the play since then, it, it got a lot of it got a lot of views, I think. Um, and this will be something that Ivan can correct me on if it's not. But I think it's the most downloaded episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be honest, I think that's all just uh, the name kind of pops <laughs> in a pile. It's, I want to fuck with Raymond Julia. It sounds like a weird thing. And it's had a lot of readings uh, around the country. And then now in prepping for the production, I'm actually right here at, uh, at a residency at the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire. And I'm actually working on rewrites for the play right now in, in prep for the production. First of all, the title is amazing. It's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, marketing is a little bit sticky, but it's totally worth it because every playwright wants to have a title like that. I mean, it's like, boom, right in your face. Love it. <laughs> so as a playwright, can you just talk about the value of having your piece read in front of an audience? So so part of the question is, all right, great. It's it's wonderful to have a reading in front of you know a, a live audience, but it's also wonderful to have a reading in a podcast form that can go out to the yeah. 
world. So can you talk a little bit about how readings fit into our development as playwrights and their value? Yeah, you know, and that's just, I think there's some really incredible things that with like kind of the reading circuit that playwrights go on, but it's really indicative of that kind of development hell that emerging playwrights get into. You know, a play will have, like, I want to fuck at this point has had like, it's about to have another one in March in LA. So it's about to have like six readings at professional and non-professional theaters around the country. The readings for, I think, emerging playwrights, especially at my level, are always just kind of invariably attached to any kind of development opportunity. And sometimes it doesn't really lead to anything else. In terms of what Yvonne was doing with this, in terms of having a reading also in front of a live audience, so we still get that. I mean, there's we're not doing we're not playwrights for the money, right? Like we're playwrights because we kind of like that electricity of a live performance, but also the gift of having something that's done. And it's different than a radio drama, which is what I like about Parsnip. Like they're just, they're giving us a product almost. Like I was able to, when I started pitching myself to artistic directors around the country and sending my work out and things, I could always attach the the podcast to a thing. And it, it gave a platform, especially when Parsnip moved to Spotify and things like that. It really gave a platform for like, sending the work out in a way that normally that development hell doesn't really allow, right? I could, if you were, if I would talk to you as a producer, I could be like, yeah, it's had six readings, but that doesn't really tell you much about how the play lives off the page, which is the kind of trap that a lot of playwrights get into. And I think like with this play, for example, I sometimes I think people get really intimidated by all the kind of outrageousness of the, of the world. When you hear it in the podcast and you hear the way the audience kind of leans into it, I think it shows you that, oh, this is really meant for the stage. Like, this isn't anything but. And I think also, and this is kind of selfish, but, you know, Parsnip, having that a recorded thing was just such a, was such a beautiful moment because I don't really, as a playwright, we, it's kind of very ephemeral, you know? It was this great, great thing. Like, my family, I, you know, I have family in South America and Florida, and it's very, very far from New York, and we don't have the resources to always just come up here no matter what, particularly for just a reading here and there. And so it was really great to be able to like send my podcast to people that meant something to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I think the the having it recorded just really broke that kind of routine of like a reading, another reading, another reading, you know, 15 people say it here, 30 people say it here, 10 people, five people say it and the other two. I could really share it with the world in a way that I, I'm not normally allowed. Mm-hmm. I also think that there's something to be said for having some proof. Like you can share it with a producer and say, you wouldn't say it like this, but say, look, people like this. Do you hear them laughing? Do you hear them making these sounds? <laughs> I totally agree. Like it's, and I mean, I, so I've been listening to the podcast a lot while I've been rewriting. So that's actually been another thing I just discovered while I was here. I got to be honest with you that I, I listen to the podcast all the time and it, it feels like this weird self-masturbatory thing when I do it. But what, what's really great is because, you know, that, that night was really magical. And I think Ivan can, can support me in that, like, my specific night of recording was so beautiful. And, and there was an energy in the room. And, and the podcast really captured that. So mm-hmm. even in my worst moments, and the actors I, I got for my podcast were unbelievable, like, incredible actors. So they really leaned into the just having fun and the vocal quality of it. I was also bringing in pages that are like last rehearsal with them. So they were also excited and at really like hot off the presses new work. Mm-hmm. Just and hearing it in rewrite. So like while, when I'm rewriting it, like I was just working on um, the third scene rewrites and I was listening to it as it was happening. And I remembered 
oh, right, the audience really responded to that. Or like, oh, this joke didn't really quite land. Or like, oh, the silence or like people leaning in and humming with something is all really literally palpable because I can hear it on the podcast. It's like so helpful, <laughs> which I was like, I wish every play had like a professional recording. <laughs> like I needed, it's, it's really great. Yeah, because we sometimes get so close to the work that yeah. are tired of certain jokes and you just forget that for other people, this is fresh and they might respond to it, but we're just bored with yeah, what we've yeah. been doing. And yeah, or right when we're doing rewrites, it just looks like I fucking hate this bastard already. Like I'm just like, it's like a child that won't behave. And then I remember <laughs> with the podcast, it's like, oh, right, people like this child. It's great. Right, right. Um, and I also really appreciate that she has interviews with the playwrights uh, at yeah. the conclusion. It's a nice way to get to know you, but also a reminder that an actual real person made this. Yeah, yeah. I remember being also, I mean, like all playwrights, I was like shitting myself. Yeah. Before. And Ivan can tell you, I mean, you can hear it in the podcast at the beginning when I talked to you that I'm like nervous as all hell. But I think what was great is Ivan also did such a good job of like just talking and I, Ivan's such a real person, which is what I appreciate. You know, she and I, whenever I see Ivan, it's always like seeing a cousin or something. So she just really let me be myself. And I think like in hearing the way I kind of talk and I talk about the work at the end, it sounds like I want to fuck, right? It sounds like the person that wrote that. At least I think it does. You know, it, it sounds like to me, like when I listen to that part and sometimes I gotta be honest, sometimes the interview part's hard to listen to. <laughs> for a lot of reasons, but it's also just like, I know hearing your own voices is, you know, and then I also like Karen Abreu who did the music along with Chris Peters on the guitar for that is just like, I just saw the two of them at Rockwood Music Hall and their kind of music is just incredible. So I also just love listening to Karen and Chris sing and play in it. It's just, it gives such a really cool dimension to this idea of what a reading canon should be, you know? Yes, I agree. All three of those components, the reading, the music, and the interview, it just makes for a, a wonderful evening with yeah. artists. Yeah. I mean, like, how do you, like, as someone that sees also readings in person, like, how does it feel incomparatively when you listen to, like, an episode of The Price of Ship, whether it's mine or not? Like, does it just feel so different? Well, I feel like I can listen in a different way because when I am at a reading as a live person, sometimes I feel like, there's an extra layer of being like an audience performer, which can be wonderful. You know, you want to lean into the piece for the playwright and the actors and all of that. But sometimes that can get in the way of me actually listening to the piece. <laughs> and I also like that I can re-listen to the things that I missed because that to me is always, you know, there, there are always magical moments in the theater that I will remember forever, but they are really ephemeral and you, I want to listen again. I want to feel that thing again. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I totally hear you. <laughs> audience, performative audience. Yeah. That's definitely a thing for sure. And I mean, that might be a thing that's just about me and that's kind of weird, but I just, I think from a playwright's perspective, having that like collateral, having that proof is vital and that all, all playwrights should just be able to have that. It's such yeah. a gift. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Do you have anything else that you would like to share either about where you want to take this play or about the parsnipship or anything that we haven't covered related to this experience? You know, in terms of where I want to take this play, I, I don't know. I'm so kind of like deciding, I think, cause it's having, having such a big moment, you know, I, I want to fuck has been, I don't know. It brought me closer to the artist I want to be. 
it brought me closer to the writer I, I, I hope to be. And I think more than anything, I mean, yes, all the things we've been saying about the great platform of hearing a reading again, just literally the fun of doing it and like the exposure that it gave me. But I think more than anything, and, and you know, we're you and I are both and I'm on as well. Like we're all in this place of trying to make art our career and our career our art. And what I want to fuck did for me as a play, and I really could not have gotten here. I couldn't have gotten this award for this production without Ivan and Parsnip, but more than all the opportunities that I want to fuck has come and hopefully that it will continue to have and maybe a life after this production in New York and after, you know, we kind of see what happens. But more than anything, it just, this opportunity with Parsnip and Ivan really let me, I don't know, figure myself out as an artist and it reminded me why I, I love to write and that I'm, that I'm good at it and that I have my own point of view. And I think it's like this, this gift that keeps on giving people here at McDowell with me are asking a lot of questions about, I want to fuck. And, you know, just cause when I think of my body of work now, I think of that as like the play that is most me. And I don't know, I'm just really grateful that Yvonne is also about the art and she really just gave me the opportunity to be, to discover something about myself as a playwright. Like she didn't do it for me. She just gave me the platform, which I think all good producers do yeah i just can't speak highly enough about her or the podcast and parse it i guess that's all i would add (laughs) (laughs) wonderful well thank you so much for your work which again i just think is brilliant and i can't wait to read some of your other pieces as well but i wish you great and wonderful success this year and beyond yeah thank you so much this has been lovely to talk about it everything If you would like to continue today's conversation, please visit HowlRound.com and follow HowlRound and Artist Soapbox on Twitter and Facebook. A big thank you to the staff at HowlRound who make this show possible. Our music is Spring Idol by Penny Miles. Check out the show notes for links and for more information. Thank you. Thank you.